Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Lucas Oil, TireRack.com, and RockAuto.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Thank you, Alec Webb, and welcome everyone to MotorWeek podcast number 263. I am John Davis, and joining me today, our senior executive producer, Dave Scribner. Hello. Our writer, two-wheel and reporter, Brian Robinson. Happy to be here, sir. And our over-the-edge reporter, Greg Carlos. Hey, hey. And welcome to all of you. We've got a lot to cover, and that includes the just-completed 2021 Munich Auto Show or Munich Motor Show, whatever you want to call it these days. We'll get into that in a second. The 2021 Jeep Wrangler 4xe we're going to talk about that led off our new series. Uh, 2022 Porsche 911 GT3. And we've got a little bit of uh, Goss's Garage uh, talking about the long lost Maxton that is highlighted as we begin our 41st season on the air. We've got a lightning round. We've got a YouTube question. We'll see if anybody's got a rant and rave, but let me uh, start. People might say, well, we've never really heard in this country of the Munich Auto Show anymore. And that's why, because uh, every two years we would all traipse off to the Frankfurt Auto Show, which was also known as the IAA, and now it's called the IAA Mobility. Basically, they've moved Germany and Europe's biggest auto show that happens once every two years from Frankfurt to Munich because of declining interest in Frankfurt. And this was the first year, and I'm not so sure that even here it has lived up to anything close to uh, past hype. It basically ended up being a showcase mostly for the German brands. And for that matter, and maybe that's no surprise to everyone, most of the new vehicles shown there were electrified and in many cases, all electric. So I'm kind of gonna run down a laundry list of uh, what was new there. And everybody can chime in once I've done to either ask questions or maybe add something that I overlooked. Uh, we'll start with Mercedes-Benz. They've easily had the most new stuff there. Their highlight was something called the EQE. Now EQ is Mercedes uh, electrified sub-brand. This is an electric sedan that's very much akin to the E-Class. It is designated to make it to the US eventually. They're probably talking about a 300, around 300 mile range when it gets here. It will also offer an all wheel drive version. Uh, it's smaller than the EQS sedan they showed before, but larger than the EQC, their small all electric crossover. And speaking of the EQS, they also showed an EQS SUV concept. Um, they showed an EQG, which is an all electric version of the G-Wagon. This was a concept, but it really did basically register with a lot of people. Uh, and one of the few non-all-electric vehicles shown at the show was something called, and we probably won't get it here, the E-Class All-Terrain, basically a raised, I'm sorry, C-Class All-Terrain, a raised C-Class wagon. And it was uh, actually pretty interesting. It looked a lot tougher than uh, any Mercedes wagon we've ever seen before. Over at Rival BMW, uh, they had a variety of vehicles, but the one that really captured everybody's attention was a concept, and it's a pretty unusual concept. It's called the iVision Circular. The circular sort of uh, lends to its egg-like shape. 
It's a fully recyclable, 100% recyclable city car. Uh, of course, all electric. They also showed a couple of vehicles in Europe that they bought. we've already seen in China, the iX SUV and i4 sedan, all electric, and a new one, the i5 hydrogen based on the 5 series sedan. VW also went the concept route with the ID Life concept, their electric city car, pretty interesting vehicle, looks like it's headed for production. We saw the uh, second of the um, new concepts of three concepts from Audi. They already showed the Sky Sphere at Pebble Beach, and this was the Grand Sphere they showed in Munich, a much larger vehicle, a beautiful looking sedan to give you an idea of not only where they're going in styling, but also as autonomous driving starts to take hold, what their vision is there. Speaking of vision, Mini, even though it's a British brand, it's owned by BMW, they called, showed something that's very unusual for them, the Vision Urban Aut, which by any other definition, it's a small minivan concept and the largest vehicle they've ever made. This is just a concept now, but it looks like it's headed for production. It's gonna probably be built in China, along with uh, another Chinese built vehicle, perhaps the Smart Concept One, which is actually about the size of a mini countryman, the largest vehicle Smart's ever built. Smart's not sold here anymore. It's doubtful they'll return, but they are still alive in other parts of the world. And finally, on my laundry list, a vehicle they kept completely under wraps until they unveiled it, and they, I give them kudos for that. Uh, the Porsche Mission R, a uh, fully sustainable EV race car, pretty cool looking machine. Um, but that's kind of like my rundown of what I saw in all the news reports and uh, from Munich. And um, my impression is for an all electric vehicle show, it wasn't bad, but for a global car show, I just wonder how much there was that uh, was shown there was uh, really relatable to us here in the US, certainly less than what we used to come out of Frankfurt with. But I think it says a lot about where at least the industry globally is heading and uh, what car shows are heading to be. So uh, any comments or anything else about anything we saw there? Yeah, I feel like it's uh, the show kind of missed its mark probably with most of car enthusiasts because it is a lot of it is like a concept. Some of it was completely autonomous. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of emotion with these, uh, at least from where I sit, these electric cars. Uh, you could argue for Porsche. The Mission R is pretty cool because that's, Similar to like a Cayman-sized uh, right. uh, customer race car. Porsche's big with selling customer race cars. Uh, so, that I mean, that that definitely piqued my interest. Uh, but performance-wise, we did get a little bit. Mercedes-AMG, uh, they have uh, the, the EQS will get AMG treatment, so right. 751 horsepower. Uh, if you go to the top, they have two levels of the AMG uh, if you go to the top one, 751 horsepower. And then Hyundai, a uh, little bit different uh, approach. They're sticking with hydrogen or at least, uh, you know, still trying to push hydrogen. They have a uh, hydrogen-fueled sports car. I think the concept FK is what they're calling it. And it actually is a bit of a hybrid, but a fuel cell hybrid. So it has a fuel cell up front powering the front axle and then a battery-powered rear motor powering the rear axle so that's that's kind of cool definitely some 
you know, hydrogen is still making a push. So I don't think that's totally gone yet. And in some ways, I think it's kind of gained steam in the last few years. I think I it's drive it without hydrogen. Pardon? I wonder if you can drive it without hydrogen and just do the battery part. I don't know. It's question. With a lot of uh, hybrids, if the battery goes down or the electric source goes down, you're dead. I, I'm glad you brought up, Greg, um, Hyundai, because they had did make a big announcement. They laid out a very extensive uh, hydrogen future for the brand. And again, you wonder how much of that will ever be practical here, except maybe in California. Mr. Robinson, we haven't yeah. heard anything from you. Yeah, I still have a hard time wrapping my uh, not very smart brain around how we're going to charge all these electric vehicles that everyone says they're exclusively going to make in the coming years. But uh, of any brand, Mercedes makes me a believer. They just seem to have really good plans and also really good real vehicles. So uh, I think uh, they give me hope. Uh, the iVision circular concept, I think the circular comes from the recyclable nature of right. Yeah, how they look at their brand, which to me, that's the last thing you want to hear on a car that it's just uh, recyclable. <laughs> you know, I would I want a car that, you know, I can hold on to and cherish for a long time. Um, other yeah, than I, was that, referring, I was referring to if you look at the shape, it is kind of a circular shape, but you're absolutely right. It's supposed to be from oh, birth to death recyclable. Yeah. Yeah, I like the ID uh, Life Volkswagen. That looked really cool. And uh, but the mini minivan that's definitely uh, where it's at i would buy it if it looked anything close to that in uh, production version are you kidding no i love <laughs> it you don't like it what's not to like <laughs> i'm gonna save my pennies for the audi grand sphere i love that styling direction it's the it's the best looking of the huge grills that i've seen you're right good <laughs> the sculpted sides and it's, if that's her direction i applaud it for styling it, it definitely had that long, low, wide, unbelievable look to it that, uh, well, we used to say we're only show cars, but we've seen quite a few in recent years. It was, I think you would have to say it was the most attractive vehicle that they showed, anybody showed? Definitely. Well, so Munich, I don't know, the future of the auto shows uh, in Europe, we'll see. Uh, Paris is next year, we'll see what happens there. Um, I, I wonder though, with all, if we can all get as excited about all of these EVs as we have in the past about internal combustion engine vehicles, maybe it's just my age, but right now I, I find many of them less than exciting. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, let's do move on and actually we're going to talk about an electrified vehicle, possibly the last one that a lot of us thought would ever get electrification. And we let off the uh, first show in our 41st season with it, the 2021 Jeep Wrangler 4xE. And this is a plug-in hybrid. So besides the fact it looks and drives pretty much like most other Wranglers, what did we think about it? Uh, yeah, there's no point in belaboring what it looks like. Everyone knows what the Wrangler looks like by now, uh, pretty much the same since it has, uh, since World War II, just bigger uh, and four doors now, hardtop. Uh, the biggest difference is obviously the tech behind it. Uh, there's a huge charge port on the driver's side of the A pillar now, which is used to charge the 17 kilowatt hour battery pack, which is under the rear seat. Uh, that starts off with the two liter turbo four engine and then a pair of electric motors added to it for 375 horsepower, which is pretty stout. 
in a Wrangler, uh, despite how big it's gotten. Uh, and you can choose uh, when to deploy the EV range, which is a nice feature. 22 miles of it is what you get. So you can save it for the trail and tread more lightly than ever. The, it is only available in the four-door uh, unlimited body style. And one of the motors is integrated into the automatic transmission. So no manual uh, available. Um, but they also do still... Um, sell a diesel version of the Wrangler as well. Our mileage loop uh, was better with the plug-in uh, than it was in the diesel. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, driving any Jeep with no engine noise is certainly a bizarre experience, <laughs> but it's certainly not a quiet one either because everything else is still noisy. So you still get the full Wrangler experience. Uh, maybe the biggest deal is that it's still crazy capable. You still get two-speed transfer case standard, four-wheel drive, uh, and that electric torque, you can even get a Rubicon version. And that electric torque certainly uh, helps in off-road situations. Scrib, you drove it a lot more off-road than me. Maybe you can weigh in more on that. Yeah, I did all the off-road driving for our shots and I uh, did it all in EV mode. And uh, we, we drove around mostly through the woods and some mud and open fields and things like that. And we did it for several hours all in battery range and didn't use up all the battery. Um, I had wished we had gotten the, a little aggressive, more aggressive tire package. We had a, a Sahara Unlimited, I believe, mm. just more of a, a medium range tire for off-roading. And the mud gave us some, some problems. But you didn't get stuck. <laughs> did, Can I say that? Oh, I got buried, John. Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> I got pulled out by a tractor, but it's not, it was the tire's fault and driver's fault, whatever. <laughs> it it looks like be told. It looked like terra firma, but it was mud. <laughs> and it's not got the high, high centered itself, but very capable off-road generally. The, you know, the transfer cases and things and all the electric doodads you had to get you unstuck. It would have worked. I, I got pretty deeply in, so more than, more than I planned to, let's say. More than you planned to, definitely. Greg? Yeah, you know, I didn't get to take it off-road. Uh, didn't get stuck, unfortunately. Uh, Fortunately. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm not a, I'm not a huge Jeep guy. Uh, guess I never understood the Jeep thing, but, uh, as believe it or not, I think the four by E is probably as close as I've come because I really enjoyed driving around on full electric and, you know, I kind of live like in like a very hybrid country city setting. So I'm able to be downtown in uh, my undisclosed location, uh, pretty quickly or on the back roads. And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the semi-silent driving. Um, you know, unless you really, really goose it, uh, you pretty much just stay on that all electric uh, powertrain or part of the powertrain the whole time. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's just a, not a typical uh, Jeep Wrangler experience when you're in all electric mode. Uh, but I think I kind of like that better. Well, you know, let's... let's Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. It was fun driving through the woods in EV mode and hearing, you know, just kind of being at one with nature, so to speak, and not you could kind of enjoy your surroundings more, I think. Well, you know, this is interesting considering just the conversation we just had a few moments ago about maybe the lack of excitement at the Munich Auto Show. Now, here's a vehicle that traditionally is one of the loudest, crudest things on the road, and at least two of the three of you, and if maybe it's all three of you, have just said 
how much you enjoyed the fact that electricity and even were excited about the fact that the electric aspect of the four by E made it better in your minds. Am I right? In that situation, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I thought your, your comment, Dave, about enjoying, you know, just being out with nature without necessarily all the exhaust rumble, a very interesting one. So. I mean, 22 miles off road is a long line if you're on some decent trail. That's a long yeah. trip, you know, it's not just a five minute thing. It's you know, a couple hours at least. I do worry a little that it's easily the most complicated Wrangler ever built. And uh, we understand that some people bought them not because of the car shortage going on, didn't even know they were buying uh, a plug-in <laughs> hybrid. Uh, but um, kudos to um, Stellantis for uh, going that route. So, okay, another vehicle that led off our 41st season, the 2022 Porsche 911 GT3. Greg, would you like to take us through that? Sure. Uh, I just mentioned I'm not a big Jeep guy. I am a big Porsche guy, though, so I enjoy all the noises that come along with all 911s. Uh, this one in particular, the, the GT3, uh, just a refresher. You have the 911 Carreros, which are your street-going ones that can certainly handle the track, but GT, when you see th those two letters, that's specifically uh, for track work. I mean, they are street legal, of course, but, I mean, they are built to really take uh, – or to, to take on a track. Uh, so if you're a big horsepower improvement fan with new models, uh, you're probably going to be disappointed because there's, I think, like two more horsepower compared to the last GT3. It's 502 horsepower, which, uh, you know, that's not a little amount of horsepower by any means. But when you're now talking about 600 and even 700 horsepower, it's pretty common amongst high-performance cars. You know, it can kind of get lost in the fray. But it doesn't hold it back at all on the track. We took it to Summit Point, both Dave and I, and I'm sure he'll chime in on this one. Uh, I mean, it's it was probably a little bit too big for the track we had it on. It was on Shenandoah, so we it's couldn't really so open it up a whole lot. Uh, mm -hmm. But, it, I mean, you still get around the course so quickly. And uh, naturally aspirated four-liter. They, they, they still haven't gone turbocharged with the GT3. They're going to stick with the naturally aspirated uh, six-cylinder. Sounds phenomenal. Um, Dave, that sounds like a nice point for you to jump in and talk yeah, about I, how I, you I, felt yeah, on the track. Naturally with it. aspirated. Um, I, I, especially on track, I prefer the naturally aspirated engine for uh, more predictability on the power delivery. And this revving up thing to, was it eight, 9,000 RPM? It's just phenomenal. Um, we did um, you know, one ski jump they have on that course. We got airborne several times at 135 miles an hour or so. And it always lands composed and ready for the next turn and never puts a tire wrong. It really just, it makes everything so easy to do because the car is so capable. It goes where you want it to go. And there's always room in reserve for when your bravery runs out, there's still some car left to, to reel you in back, <laughs> back to sanity as it were, but uh, phenomenal car to drive as, as always with Porsches. Yeah, they switched up the front suspension for the first time in a production 911. They have a uh, double wishbone front, which is straight out of the race car. Most of this car is straight out of their uh, their race cars, uh, you know, minus the exhaust. Obviously, you have to have a different exhaust than a, than a race car on the street. Um, I, this was the first time that I really – I didn't go straight to uh, Sport, their firmest suspension setting, because we did have one of their techs there. 
And he, judging by the conditions of the track, we actually kept our I I kept it in a softer setting, which for most of it was more rewarding. It it didn't jump around as much. There were some corners that you felt like if you if you had the skill to be able to switch it back and forth mid, you know, lap, that would be ideal. Uh, but you know, it's you know if if you've never done track work with an adaptive suspension just know you don't always have to go into the stiffest suspension. It's not always the answer. Right. I agree. Mr. Robinson. Yeah. And uh, not only is the air uh, adaptive with all kinds of different modes, you can go into the modes and tweak them. You can evenly manually adjust the suspension if you know what you're doing there. So tons of adjustment that that front suspension just gives all the feedback and uh, direct feel of the road in the world that you could want in a car. Engine's perfection, which uh, they've already touched on. I didn't get to drive it on the track. I have driven plenty, uh, spent more time in the GT3 with the touring package, uh, which, you know, despite all of the track race car stuff they keep putting into it, it's still a totally comfortable, streetable car that you could drive every day if you wanted to. And uh, the touring package even more so. Um, just if you got the bucks, uh, I would absolutely recommend buying it. And that right there, gentlemen, is the reason so many of our Motor Week fans think we have the best job in the world, jobs in the world. To be able to drive something like a 911 GT3 on a racetrack at triple digits and That's do cool. it and still get paid for it. I still own a house. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of beginning uh, of our new season, we did something else uh, to start off the new season. Uh, we actually, thanks to Dave Scribner, found a long lost gem, uh, something that dates back decades. And uh, we surprised Pat Goss with it. And uh, Dave, why don't you fill us in? What was it? What happened? Where'd you find it? And what are we going to do with it? It's the Maxton Roller Skate, which is a component car that we built in 1991 and gave away in a contest. We got like 900,000 postcards and pulled one. The guy who won it was in Long Key, Florida. I remember going down there. (laughs) Craig and Pat and I drove it, towed it down there in our Suburban and uh, gave it away to the guy. He didn't drive a stick shift. His wife (laughs) went into the contest and he kept the car for a year or two and sold it um, to a friend of the show's, Mike Whitfield, back in Owings Mill. So it made it way back up to Baltimore. And uh, Michael, unfortunately, passed away recently. And I, I spoke to his widow and asked if I could borrow the car to uh, put on the Gosses garage set and surprise Pat with it on the first day of taping. That's what we did. But it had been sitting in his garage for 25 years, and I had to literally um, take the rear brake pads out so the car would roll. It was so frozen solid. The clutch is still stuck to the flywheel and it won't engage or disengage. But I got it. I replaced the fuel pumps and the fuel lines and got the thing to start up. And it sounds pretty, uh, pretty wordy. Um, fun little car to drive when I get a chance to do it. I'll certainly uh, be first behind the wheel. But Pat um, looked it over and said there's some things we should address to get it back on the road. And we, we intend to. And I might actually end up buying it myself and keep it in the Motor Week family if it all goes well. 
Dave is is becoming one of uh, our resident historian of all things Motor Week. So I have Dave's oddball uh, orphans car collection. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's very exciting, and I I think as the season goes on, it's going to be fun to watch uh, uh, Pat uh, tackle some of those issues and bring back uh, a major chapter. I think it's that was the uh, that's really the only car we've ever built on the show. So. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's a Mazda 13B rotary engine, which is tough to find a Mazda rotary mechanic these days. Mm. But I found one actually close to where Greg lives. I'm going to advise with them about what to do to get it, you know, up the, up the spec again and tuning and running good. So stay tuned and we'll, I'll keep at it and get it uh, back in ship shape as soon as I can. Terrific. Okay, we're going to move on now to our traditional lightning round. Let me read this one. Um, Wallet Hub released its report on 2021's best and worst cities to drive in. The site compared the 100 largest cities across 30 key metrics. The data set ranges from average gas prices to annual hours and traffic congestion for auto commuter to auto repair shops per capita. Oakland, California was ranked last, and maybe that's not terribly surprising. It's a, uh, a city with lots of congestion, and I might add an awful lot of uh, electrified vehicles. While Raleigh, North Carolina, my home stomping grounds, actually took top honors, and I have to tell you that a lot of people who live in Raleigh might disagree with that. So anyway, what are the best and worst cities that we as a group and you as individuals have ever driven it. It's no surprise that uh, four of the worst cities are in California yeah. <laughs> at list. And surprising that three of the top lists are in North Carolina and Florida. So yeah, just, I think geographically the, the regions are more spread out down South and you have more room to roam. And the cities are much smaller. I mean, we're talking about millions of people in the California metropolitan areas and far less than that around the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area. Now, I, how about you personally? I, I got to say for the states, um, California is just anywhere you go there is can be a nightmare in a given minute. You know, I've, I've driven across the state several times and you know, even this year I went up there for a, for a motor week shoot and some days it's great and sometimes it's not. <laughs> But I, I don't I don't relish driving across any city in California. Any place that you found easy, easier than expected? I, I tend to avoid the cities on my road trips, and I've done quite a number of them in the last year. But I I, I was surprised how back course it's a highway, but driving through the Ozarks was one of the best drives I've done in years. Just so much the scenery and the the rolling hills and the traffic was was light and even the cities you kind of skirted around them and it wasn't so bad and you moved right through so brian how about you are we talking about like actual city cities downtown areas or like including yeah. beltways and uh, stuff like that i mean like <laughs> city surrounding areas yeah well why isn't wallet hub like a financial services thing why are they doing traffic thing well, they oh, took, I think it, everybody and their it. brothers into into you know they're looking for stuff to engage their their Quick fans date. with, and they all are yeah. branching out to a lot of stuff. And after all, staying stuck in traffic, as we've seen over the years, is a can be a major financial drain on an area in total. Well, so. Anyway, um, L.A. is the absolute worst as far as sitting in traffic, as far as I'm concerned. But 
there is a payoff. I mean, once you get out of town and like out in the canyons, there's like amazing driving roads. Whereas like in New York, uh, you can sit in traffic, but there's never any great reward for it other than just getting home. Uh, I will say driving in New York City, I actually one of the few people that love doing that. I actually went there not long after I started driving. I was in a cab and I asked the cab driver, like, what's what's the deal? How, how do you drive in New York City? And he's like, the uh, best advice. He's like the white lines on the road. He's like, don't pay any attention to them. If you can fit a car, then that's a lane. You, you can drive as fast as you want and do just about anything you want just don't run any red lights and you'll be good to go (laughs) (laughs) greg uh yeah you know what i'm kind of with robinson on that one because i think there's like an understanding amongst all the drivers there where like yeah they're like guidelines i don't think anybody's really holding anybody to actual rules but like there's it it somehow works like it moves it's like a living organism so that's cool but i'll stick up for la is probably my favorite to drive in because yeah i know the traffic and everything but the roads are so good that i can put up with all of that and my worst is because i live near it as dc northern virginia because uh basically like robinson said about new york the traffic is ridiculous and i i mean la has terrible traffic traffic uh, I think DC Northern Virginia rivals it. I mean, it's it's I'm behind bad. Until the list. <laughs> it's yeah. bad all the time, uh, and there are really not a ton of great roads outside of it. I mean, it's just it's so congested in in DC in that Northern Virginia area. I'm going to chime in with a, a city that I think my, is my tops for I hate to drive in. I actually don't mind. I kind of agree with you, Greg, uh, about California. But Boston, I think, is the most car unfriendly city in America. And I think they're very, actually very proud of it. <laughs> Between the, the streets and the tunnels and the bridges and everything else, very difficult to drive in. As far as the easiest city to drive in, um, I was surprised how easy uh, I have a time getting around Nashville, Tennessee. It's a big metropolitan area, actually bigger than the New York metropolitan area. Yeah. But they've done a good job on, on highways and bypasses. And for a big city, a really big city or a big metropolitan area, I think it's pretty good. But Boston, fly in, take a boat, take a train, whatever you do, but just don't drive a car. Hmm. Yeah, anything else? Nope. Right. We'll move on. We have a YouTube question from Cindy. When do you think the chip shortage will end? Looking at an Audi uh, advertisement and the sales, she, oh, I'm sorry, talking to an Audi a dealer and the salesperson indicated it might not be until 2023. Is that true or a way just to get uh, the vehicles on their lot sold at a higher price? I, you know, in the last few days, there've been several indications that we are indeed looking well into 22 and maybe into 23 before things get quote unquote back to normal. Anybody else have an impression? All, yeah, all I have is anecdotal evidence as uh, a good friend of mine who is, his job is very much to track this stuff was like two years until we can get back on track wow. probably. Uh, so take that for what it's worth, but I'll tell you this, it's not going to be soon. It's not going to be like this year. You know, yeah. there are a couple of trucks that are half finished waiting for chips. Yeah, everyone's waiting for chips. And some dealers, I deal with this almost on a weekly basis. 
uh, talking to a dealer today, they literally have three cars on their lot, three brand new cars. And you can come and drive one and then order one. You can't take any of those cars, buy them. They have literally no cars to sell. And uh, he said they have no uh, no plans on getting in any any anytime soon unless you order it. And wow. you know, this is having a trickle-down effect into the used car market. I there's very few good, really good used cars out there because people are trading them in uh, for new cars because they can't get them. I was by two big auto auctions up in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area uh, last week. And what you see is either a lot of stuff that you really wouldn't want, or you see RVs, commercial vehicles, but what you don't see are two and three-year-old passenger vehicles ready for sale. And when you drive by the lots, you're not going to see a lot of pickup trucks. You're not going to see a lot of large SUVs. You might see some sedans, but people don't generally want sedans. Or like we were talking about the 4XE for Wrangler, uh, people are going into a Jeep dealer, they see a, a 4XE and they're a 4xE rather, and they're they're buying it sight unseen. They haven't driven it, they don't even know it. it's an electrified vehicle. All they think it is is a Wrangler, and then they're getting home and finding out it's something different. So um, I'm not surprised that uh, that a salesperson is telling uh, Cindy that it could be 2023, and and uh, I think that it probably will be which is not good for anybody. Yeah. That's, I mean, be prepared to pay a market adjustment or for the car over your sales price. I had a friend got to buy a Tucson. They were in the dealership and they were like, all right, great. Everything looks good. And then looked over the final paperwork and was like, Oh, $5,000. What's this? I'm like, well, this is the money we add on because of it's hard to get cars right now. And that, and the, the salesman was actually arguing. He was like, oh, well, it's not part of the price. And my friend's like, well, I'm paying it, right? He's like, yeah, but it's like, you think of it like a tax. Anyway, just, just <laughs> if you go to buy a car, uh, be prepared because there might be a little more money tacked on right before you sign the papers. I really think it's a terrible time to be in the market for a car. So unless you've absolutely got to do it, don't. And be prepared to take you know, whatever they've got and maybe less than what you expect. I do think that we will see the situation ease by perhaps the end of the year and early into 2022. But uh, it's clear from a lot of things besides just chips that um, the supply lines are not going to get back to normal for a while yet. And you're going to probably see it this Christmas. We're getting off subject here with electronics TVs, kids games, all of that stuff, because uh, this chip shortage is affecting just about everything. Having said that, Cindy, I hope, I'm sorry, we couldn't give you more encouraging advice, but thanks very much for, for uh, sending in our, the question. And I think that pretty much wraps up uh, our uh, podcast number 263. Thanks, Dave, Brian, and Greg. Also want to thank uh, Jim Bigwood, our audio engineer, our podcast producer, which is Greg, of course and our podcast creator, Bob Mixter. And for all of you out there, Motor Week is entering into its 41st season. We hope you'll uh, catch us on uh, the public television stations uh, around the country. If you wanna know where to catch Motor Week, go to our motorweek.org website, click on about the show up in the right-hand corner, put in your zip code. It'll list all of the uh, stations in your area that carry us. You can also catch 
uh, on PBS Living, uh, streaming live, uh, seg uh, streaming in complete episodes. And uh, we have millions and millions of folks that go over to our youtube.com slash motorweek channel every month and catch all of our segments. There's hundreds and hundreds of them on there. And we put new information up uh, almost daily. Uh, I'm not sure if I left anything out. Social media is hot. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. But until next time, to one and all, and from all of us, thanks for being a part of Motor Week. You've been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by Lucas Oil, TireRack.com, and RockAuto.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at motorweek.org. And watch MotorWeek, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.